We'll be in that last paragraph of Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Eric Little was a Scottish Olympian, and more importantly, a Scottish missionary to China. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it records his uh, Olympic endeavors. You may remember, you may have heard the story where he, as the schedule for the Olympics came out, his his event was scheduled for a Sunday, and he believed that it would be sin for him to compete on the Lord's Day, so he chose to compete in a different event. He was specialized in the 100-meter sprint, and he chose to run the 400-meter sprint so that he could honor God. Now, I know for those of us non-track stars, that doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it would be like specializing in baking cakes and entering a barbecue contest. It's just a different, it's a different ball game. But he won the gold. And most, of him, most people expected him to come back the following year. In fact, reporters were hounding him. Are you sure you don't want to come back? But he chose to go to China as a missionary. And so this dedication that he showed early on was characteristic of his life. He forwent the 1928 Olympic Games to go do missions work. But as you know, being in China and in that time period, World War II was on its way. And he ends up in a prison camp there in China, but it was actually a Japanese-run camp. And he would never leave there alive. As he lay in the, the little hospital, the little makeshift hospital in this prison, after suffering a mild stroke, he was continuing his discipleship ministry. And there was this young lady that was coming in. And he was walking through the, the third chapter of a book he wrote on discipleship. And it was all about surrendering to Christ. And, and he began to, to say that word surrender. And he, he tried three times, but he could only manage to get the first syllable out of his mouth before he fell back, his head sprung back, and he had his second stroke. He would only regain consciousness for, for a, a few moments, and in the room with him was a fellow missionary there that was in that prison camp, and he looked up, and his last words was, it's total surrender. It's total surrender. And that idea of total surrender, total commitment or dedication to Christ encapsulates our story, our text this morning, where Jesus teaches us what it means to follow him. Remember, we've come to this portion in Luke where this, there's this transition where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, where he knows he will suffer and die and eventually be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so last week we looked right, on the, right in the beginning of this new section, Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans, which has become a pretty consistent theme in the book of Luke, that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to this earth to save sinners from their sins, yet over and over he is rejected by them. The Gerasenes asked Jesus, would you leave our territory? The Jewish leaders are conspiring even now on how to rid themselves of Jesus and the Samaritans have said, you're not welcome in our land. So in light of this rejection, in light of this theme of rejection, it makes sense that Luke would then follow up this, this narrative of rejection with an account of Jesus challenging these would-be disciples 
with what it truly means to follow Christ. What it truly means to follow the one who is rejected, the one who will suffer. And if we could encapsulate it, it's total surrender. So I've framed our points. If you picked up the notes this morning, um, or if you're a note taker, I've framed our main points in terms of what our response to the text should be this morning. And so number one is we must follow the one who is rejected by the world. I put not embraced. I like rejected better. The structure of this paragraph is actually really simple. It's kind of a preacher's dream, you know. It's like it just falls into place. There's three different conversations that Jesus has with three different men who are potential disciples. So the even verses, or, or let's start with the odd verses. The odd verses are either a person volunteering or Jesus calling someone and then stating what they're going to do. You know, I will follow you. The first man says, wherever you go. And then the next two are like, but let me do this, but let me do this. So the odd verses are being called or volunteering. The even verses are Jesus undermining the assumptions of the would-be disciple. What it would truly mean for them to follow Christ is what we find in the even verses. So if we begin there in verse 57, the odd verse, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now in Matthew's gospel, he includes that this man is a scribe, a a teacher of the law, but Luke doesn't seem to care at all who these people are. He doesn't care to identify these men. That's not the point that he's drawing or, or, or driving at. He's only interested in letting us know that there's a man here who who says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now this sounds more like Peter in Luke 22, when he says, even if I have to die for you, Jesus, even if I have to go to prison for you, there's no way I'm going to desert you. So this reads uh, more like a boast, and I think given Jesus' response, in the next verse, we understand that, that this is sort of presumptuous. He doesn't really understand yet what he's declaring he will do. This man sounds less like the tax collector who says, Lord, be merciful unto me, and, and more like Peter's boast in Luke 22, who essentially says, I got this. I can do this. Now, here's an interesting question for us to consider. If someone this morning came to us and said, you know what, I've decided to follow Jesus wherever he leads me. Man, we might be tempted to say, all right, this is great. Here's the the baptism sign-up sheet. We're figuring out a way to warm up the water this time. You know, let's, let's introduce you as the newest member of our church. And you know what? Let's try to find some ways for you to get serving, for you to get involved. How do you feel about kids? We could use some nursery workers. But Jesus' warning in verse 58, the fact that there is a warning at all in verse 58, reminds us to slow down. His, His response is one of the reasons that we are slow and we try to be God pleasing and we try to be methodical in our church membership practices. Or we try to be careful with. Those whom we baptize, that they have a credible understanding and commitment to the gospel. 
and that they are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, to be, to be perfectly honest, it would probably be a lot easier, at least initially, to not care about slowing down. It would probably be easier to boast on Facebook about how many new members we have and how many we have baptized. It would be easier to sort of hide the cost of following Jesus so that we might say, wow, look how many people we have that raised their hand or prayed a prayer and, and we can frame it on Facebook as if we're giving glory to God, but all along we know what we're doing. We're patting ourselves on the back. It might be easy to do that in the short term, but that ha- for a church that has devastating consequences. When you have a church full of people who don't truly understand the gospel and know what it is to follow Christ, and then they, they, they vote on who's going to be teaching them the, the Bible, as you voted before I came. And then it, it, it can deteriorate into just unhealthy and Uh, heretical teaching. J.C. Ryle says this. In fact, D.A. Carson sort of mashes up a couple quotes for us by two different people. He says this, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. Another man says, Nothing was less aimed at by our Lord than to have followers unless they were genuine and sound. He is as far from desiring this as it would have been easy for him to attain it. He's as far from wanting people who who don't understand what it is to follow Christ counted among his disciples as it is easy for him to have created that environment. We can think about after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd came back and Jesus dwindled it to twelve. And he looked at his disciples and said, do you wish to go too? And Peter said, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus clarifies for this man what it would look like in in, in the even verse there, in verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is a realist. He lets the man know how difficult it is to do the very thing that he just boasted that he could do. So I think in love, Jesus seeks to undermine any false assumptions that this man might have about what it is to be a disciple of Christ. You said, wherever. Let me tell you what wherever means. Jesus' answer is a way of describing what total commitment, total surrender to him looks like in practice. Jesus is saying, my situation, humanly speaking, is worse than the foxes and the birds. The foxes have dens, the birds have nests, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. So, so the one who you have just volunteered to follow wherever he goes, just know that that, that one 
does not have a place to lay his head. There's no promise of physical security. There's no promise of physical comfort. There is no fixed home for Jesus to go to as he has an itinerant preaching ministry. Also, in our context in Luke, he's been rejected. That's why he has no place to lay his head. If you remember, Jesus sent ahead of him messengers to go into Samaria to make preparations for his coming. And they said, you're not welcomed here. And in Samaria, there is no lodging for the Savior. There is no place for him to lay his head. And again, this idea of rejection, it's all over Luke. Jesus' public ministry in Galilee began with rejection. Where? In his hometown of Nazareth. He was rejected. This passage, this huge section, chapter 9, verse 51 through 1944, it begins with what? Rejection in Samaria. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 19, he will be rejected. So Jesus is letting this man know, and thereby letting us know, anyone wishing to follow Christ must realize they're allying themselves with the one who has been rejected by the world. It's not only true of this man in this text, but it is true of anyone who comes to Christ. It is true of you and I. There's a cost to following Jesus. And much of this cost has to do with rejection of this world. I was speaking not too long ago with a young couple in our church and they were in high school not too long ago and they were telling Lizzie and I that they they were put in a predicament in school where they had to choose Christ or disobey Christ and in choosing to obey Christ they faced the scorn and the rejection of people that they had long called some of their best friends this cost is not theoretical there's, there's a real cost and a real potential to be rejected by friends and, yes, even family for following Christ faithfully. So that's why as we preach Christ, we, we're, in our church, we're going to try not to trick people in hiding the cost of what it might mean to follow Jesus. We want to we hold up the great cost of following Christ and then announce that in light of the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ, these things seem as if they are nothing. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so rejection of friends, is, as hard as that is and as difficult as that can be, it's worth it in the end if you gain Christ. If you gain Christ. For those who have come to believe this morning that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are strangers in a world that has rejected God and His will and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we live as strangers here. We're passing through as those who have our citizenship in heaven. We may suffer rejection in this life, but in the one to come, we enjoy the unending acceptance and love of the Father through the work of the Son applied to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as strangers in this world, we we embrace the one who is not embraced. 
the one who has been rejected by this world. And secondly, as strangers in this world, our message is not of the world. We prioritize the proclamation of the kingdom. Look there in verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. The second encounter is is unique from the other two in that this man does not volunteer. He is commanded by Jesus to follow him. And this reminds us of the calling of Levi back in Luke chapter 5. Verse 27 said, After this he went out, that's Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now the next words there are important. What did Levi do? And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. There's there's a difference in our text. Levi left everything. Jesus said, come, follow me. And he got up and followed Jesus. What does it say in that next phrase in verse 59, but, but he said, and this leads us to the man's sort of rationale for why he cannot follow Jesus. I cannot heed your command right now, Jesus. I cannot follow you right now. It's not and he got up, it's but he said. He says that he must go bury his father. Now this seems like a a reasonable request. Burying one's father was a major concern in this culture, in Israelite culture. It was even considered a a sort of sacred duty, a way to honor your mother and your father. We might think of uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, who takes a whole delegation of Egyptians along with his brothers, and they go back to Canaan to bury Jacob where he desired to be buried. This is a big deal. This is a duty that a son had to his father. Now there's some debate about what is going on here. Some understand the text to to mean that this man's father is not yet dead. And there are some some good reasons why someone might conclude that, that maybe dad's still alive. You know, a funeral when we were Looking at Jesus raising the widow's son, the funeral, we said the funeral would likely happen the same day. So it's, it, it could be unlikely that this man would be out amongst Jesus, especially if he'd helped prepare his father's body. He would have been rendered unclean and would not have been among other people. Um, so those who would, who would see this in the text would say, you know, what, what Jesus is pushing back against is that this man is just going to kind of wait indefinitely so that he can gain his inheritance. And I think these are interesting things to ponder, but I'm not sure they're conclusive in in the text. I'm not sure we can look at the text and come to all those conclusions. Jesus' reply doesn't mention anything about an inheritance. He doesn't speak to the issue of waiting until his Death, it seems more likely that the father has died or he is within like minutes or hours of his dying day. And so I think Jesus is pressing this point. 
that commitment to him supersedes all other earthly commitments. Even good and right commitments like burying your father. Even those sorts of commitments are secondary to following Christ. Jesus, uh, I think, has been known in the Gospels to use hyperbolic language to really drive home his point. You know, in Luke 14, Jesus will say, unless you hate your mother and father and wife and brother and children, and yes, even hate yourself, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Well, he's not literally calling us to, to hate. We're called in Ephesians chapter four, 5 to love our wives. So it's hyperbole. It's, it's, it's language meant to drive home a specific point. Matthew, what is it, 7, pluck out your eye if it, if it condemns you, if it causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin. And so here, I, we wouldn't argue that Jesus is forbidding someone from burying their father. You know, you, you should take care of your parents and honor them even in death. But he's using strong language to make his points. And the point is made in verse 60. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying there's no priority in your life greater than the priority of Christ. Even the best excuse, even the greatest reasonable explanation is rejected by Christ. There is no priority that can exist above him. So he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Well, what's, what's Jesus doing there? Dead people can't bury people. Well, it seems to be a play on words. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the ones who reject the kingdom of Christ, let the ones who reject the message of the kingdom take care of this earthly matter. I've called you to come and follow me. To go and to proclaim the kingdom. This man is urged to do what Levi did. To, to arise and leave everything and follow Christ. Become one of the disciples and be sent out as one who will proclaim the message that the king has come in Christ Jesus. The long-awaited Savior is here. Come and proclaim that message. Next week we'll... Look at Jesus sending out these disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. But for now, let's, let's make this point. Jesus is using shocking language, and in that language, he teaches us that following Christ is not a casual commitment. It's not something that we opt in and opt out of depending on the convenience of the moment. There is no area of life in which Jesus doesn't pronounce, this is mine. This belongs to me. Christ himself, his message, his work become the first priority in the life of those who have come to Christ through faith. Our minds and our hearts are set on him and we know that we exist not for ourselves but for the glory of God. So we must not allow our priorities to get out of whack. 
even, even important and good things are not to be elevated above the priority that Christ has in our lives. Good things threaten to infringe upon our commitment to Christ. But Jesus is saying here that he must be the one that drives all the rest of those good things. So things like family, money, time, reputation, energy, skills, relationships, work, entertainment, obligations, social media, all of these things, every area of life becomes a means by which we might serve Christ and serve His mission, that we might make much of Him in this world, that we might serve and glorify His name, not our own. Third then, in verses 61 and 62, we must hold fast to Christ. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say, where, say farewell to those at my home. So in this third encounter, we're back to someone who volunteers, but there's another but there in the middle of verse 61. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. And again, once again, this seems like a reasonable thing to do. It would seem unloving to disappear from your family, and they're left wondering, what happened to Dad? I don't know. Maybe I should go and I should say goodbye. In fact, you might remember, we've been walking through First and Second Kings and Bible Hour. You might remember that this is the request that Elisha makes when Elijah comes to call him into ministry and to become an assistant, so to speak, to Elijah and an eventual successor to Elijah. He said, let me go, kiss my mother and father, goodbye. Before we sort of get into Jesus' reply, we reiterate, once again, we saw it with, you know, sort of a father relationship, let me bury my father. Here we see, again, even family ties and commitments must not be elevated above our commitment to Christ. Now, a lot of preachers have ruined their families by, not, by taking that way too far. So it's not that you neglect family. It's not that you do not lead them or spend time with them or have fun with them. But our we do those good things because we love Christ above all else. You know, another way I see this play out, and, you know, please understand, I've got young kids, I'm not coming from a place where I understand what some of you are walking through experientially. But I've seen parents who, because a wayward child accepts and begins to live in a sinful lifestyle, that now they begin to fudge on their commitment to Christ and to his word because they feel like they're, they're having to choose between loving their child or loving Jesus. And, and there's a way. And, and there's men and women in our church who have walked through this faithfully. So if you're, if you're there, I, I'd love to get you connected with some of the people in our church who have walked through this. There's a way to be faithful to Christ. In fact, the way to love your child in that moment is to remain faithful faithful to 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't change the, God's word out of a desire to love our children. It's possible for us to love our kids. In fact, as I said, the way to love wayward children is to remain faithful to the word of God. And so Christ comes before family commitments in that way. So we see a man here who, who is volunteering to follow Jesus, but he wants to delay it for a season. You know, one, I, I heard one person call him, a, he's a butt-firster, I, and I fully expect the kids to laugh at that, but it's B-U-T-F-I-R-S-T-E-R. It's, it's, I will do this, but first, I need to do this. There's a desire to delay the decision to follow Jesus. And then it's in verse 62 that we really learn the problem with this man's request. Look there in verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, in the end, we see a difference between this man and Elisha. Whereas Elisha was going home to say farewell, to really sever those ties, to give himself fully to the ministry of the Lord, when we read Jesus' rebuke about looking back and looking back as he seeks to plow, we see that the problem with this man is not that he wants to go kiss his wife and say, hey, I'm going to go follow Jesus. It's that he, will, he has a divided heart. He wants to continually be looking back to his old life. He has a divided heart. And Jesus makes this clear with his imagery of the plow and looking back. Now, with my immense farming background, I will explain the plow imagery. So, it, that's a joke. In, in the rocky soil... Of Israel, you know whether you're—I'm assuming whether you plow in rocky soil or not. But in the rocky soil of Israel, if you were plowing a field, you needed to pay unceasing attention to that which was in front of you if you hoped to to drive a straight row. It would be, you know, if you're if you're continually looking back, you're not going to drive a straight row. You may hit a rock there, and it's going to knock you off course. For a more modern image, it might be like driving. Now, I will always ever look for wildlife while I'm driving. But you know what I do when I look and I'm, I'm heading up towards Rapid City and there's that field just as you get through Hill City. For some reason, I've seen eagles there a hundred times. And, and, but you know what I do? As I look, I begin to swerve a little bit. And that's okay. That's what the rumble strips are there for. <laughs> they let you know. You're knocked off course. That's, that's the, the imagery. Is, is you're, gonna, you're not going to plow the straight line if you're continually looking back. You know, Elisha, he was plowing when Elijah called him. So I think there's some intentional parallels here to Elisha. But Elisha put down the plow he kissed his family goodbye, and he followed Elijah, and he obeyed the Lord. Seemingly, this man's desire is to plow while continually holding on to his old life. He hesitates to go 
All in, you might say. So the one who hesitates, the one who wavers, the one who doubts whether giving Christ his all is worth it, Jesus says here is not fit for the kingdom of God. It's not suitable for the kingdom of God. If you are not a Christian this morning, the warning for you from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ is do not hesitate. Do not hesitate by looking back and, and thinking, you know what, I don't want to give this old life up. Don't delay. Don't be a butt-firster and say, you know what, I'd like to follow Jesus, but first I need to do this, and first I want to enjoy this. Do not delay. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you hear the gospel regularly in your home and you hear it every week because your parents bring you to church and you say, you know what, I'll hear it on Monday night at the dinner table and I'll hear it next Sunday from the pulpit and I'll hear it in Bible hour when my teacher teaches me the gospel. I'll just sort of enjoy life now and I will find Jesus later. You know, there was a theologian named Augustine, before he came to Christ, he said, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. He wanted to enjoy the pleasures of this world, enjoy the pleasures of this life, and then I'll come to Christ. But there's a warning here. Do not presume upon God's grace. Turn to Him and do not look back. Know that there's nothing in your life worth looking back for, worth clinging on to. Whatever it is that that is keeping you from coming to Christ is not worth it. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, those who have turned to Him and are relying on the death and resurrection of Christ for our forgiveness of sins, our justification, our right standing before God, we should remember Instead of looking back and longing about the old life, we should remember exactly what it is that the Lord has delivered us from. He has moved us from spiritual death to life in Christ. From the bondage of sin to the freedom to obey Christ as we present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. From sons of disobedience to sons of God, from children of wrath to children of God, from darkness to marvelous light, from strangers to recipients of the promise, from eternal death to eternal life. We should remember what the Lord has delivered us from as we look back on our lives. We're not longing for what we lost. We are rejoicing in what Christ has saved us from you know, Lot's wife looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Israel in the wilderness, they remember fondly the days in Egypt. They misremember. They misremember the slavery that they were under, the backbreaking labor that Pharaoh required and doubled down on them. And they just remember, oh, remember how good it was. Remember how great it was when we were back in Egypt. We didn't have to eat this manna every day. You know, our flesh tempts us to look back at what we gave up. And Jesus reminds us that it's nothing. 
It's nothing compared to what we've been delivered from. So we set our eyes on Christ, and we do not waver. Mr. Miller was my trigonometry teacher in high school, and it was a, it was a good subject for him to teach. I don't remember if he was a good teacher or not, but he drew the straightest lines. And in trigonometry, straight lines matter. So as he's laboring to teach a sine and cosine and tangent or whatever all that language is, we asked him the really important question. Mr. Miller, how do you draw such straight lines? And he turned on the board and he drew two points and he began to draw from one line to the other. And he said, you know what I do? I don't watch the line as I draw it. I look at my end point and I just draw straight to that line. And somehow I get a straight line because I keep my eye on the destination. As those who are following Christ, may we be reminded not to look back, but to, but to keep our focus on Christ. Our eyes on Him. Don't look back longingly on the things you've given up. Instead, remain faithful to Christ. We can close with these words from the Apostle Paul. The words that are familiar to you. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the times we cherish our sin, and we neglect you, Father. We, we again, acknowledge our need for Christ. And thank you and praise you for making a way for sinful and frail people like us. Lord, may we obey this text. And may we obey Colossians 3 in setting our hearts and our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at your right hand. May we remember that we've died with Christ and are hidden in him. Lord, give us grace to walk in obedience to cherish your word and your will by ultimately loving you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.